Hey Rock Ridge, my name is Matt and just so excited that you've joined us this weekend at all of our six physical locations as we're one church, multiple languages, multiple locations and then I know many of you are joining us online and connecting with us that way so we're glad that you're with us. I do want to remind everybody as we're in this incredible season of seeking God in a fresh way, in an intentional way. We're in this season of seeking Him. Every Wednesday night at 6.33, we had an incredible, incredible time together on uh, this past Wednesday on August the 3rd as we prayed and sought the Holy Spirit. want to encourage you once again to join at your specific campus or online in a, a time where you fast from something on the 10th and then you join together at 6.33 p.m. on Wednesday the 10th. We're praying for breakthroughs. I know many of you need a breakthrough, whether that's for a breakthrough with healing or a breakthrough in a relationship or a breakthrough over temptation or you're facing spiritual warfare. And so I just encourage you to be there. All of us know people who need a breakthrough, and it's our time to come and intercede for them and stand in the gap for them. I do want to point you out a resource that we have available online, uh, or you can get a hard copy, but it's the 633 prayer guide that you can track with us through these through this six weeks together. And as part of our 20-year movement uh, and celebration, but more moving into the future that God has for us, we are starting a new series this weekend right now called Ripple Effect. We are going verse by verse through the entire book of 1 Corinthians. We have a study guide or an overview of 1 Corinthians available, again, also online, or you can get a hard copy. It's got Bible reading plan, scripture memory plan, questions you can ask yourself as you work through this with us, and also it just overviews what's going on when the Apostle Paul wrote this book called Ripple Effect. All right, with all of that, let's jump in. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1. You can open your Bibles, turn them on, or follow along with me. As you're doing that, I just want to ask a question. And the question is really two questions that are kind of positioned against one another. All of us can answer this to some form. There's a way we do live, and there's a way we should live, all right? There's a way we do live, and there's a way that we should live. Now, the should can be informed by a lot of things. Some of us, the should live is a sense of guilt, like, well, I know I need to stop, or I know I need to start, but. So you know how you currently do live. And then you know because of some guilt or a conscience issue how you should live, right? Sometimes the word the should is informed by culture and lifestyle and society. Like culture says you should live this way. Culture says you should have this kind of car, this kind of house, or wear these kind of clothes. Culture says, lifestyle says, and so you look at yourself at where you are and where you should be or culture says you should be, and that creates the tension. Sometimes the tension is you have a goal or a plan or a dream or an aspiration, and, and that's what you're aspiring to. And so here's where you are, what you're currently doing, and what you think you should be doing or what you want to be doing one day. And, and so all of us are aware of that tension, and this is the tension that really sets up the entire book of 1 Corinthians. Paul knows how they are living at, at these Christians, this church that he planted, uh, that he, how they are living, and then he's going to talk to them about how they should live, 
and inform that and showcase that. It's so relevant for us because this, this city where this church is located is a lot like any typical American city or Western city in the world. It's cosmopolitan. It's diverse. There's, there's status seekers. They're keeping up with the Joneses. They're, they're, they're motivated, motivated by wealth. They're, they've got per personalities like entertainers and orators and, and politicians and, and pastors that just captivate and conquer and uh, inform society. It's kind of like just the, the cult of personality that we see on the internet or we see on social media or on the news cycle. So it's really relevant, okay? How should a church live in a modern city or a modern culture or a modern context? How do they live? How should they live? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. So here's what it says. Paul, and, and Paul wrote about 13 books in the New Testament. He has been called, and this becomes a significant word that we'll actually talk about for several weeks during our time in this Ripple Effect series. So Paul is called as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, an apostle is a word we could unpack. It's someone who had an eyewitness experience with the resurrected Jesus Christ. An apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. So Paul says... I am in a position, I, I have a platform that is a result of God's calling, God's acting, God's initiative upon my life, that God is leading my life, that God has intervened in my life, and, and that's how I'm living my life as a result of the fact that I have been called by God, and that's His will for me. And Sosthenes, Sosthenes, our brother. Now, Sosthenes is probably a, a Jew that, be, that was a synagogue ruler in Corinth that became a Christian as a result of Paul's ministry there when Paul planted the church. And you can pick that up in Acts 18. It's also part of the reading plan for this week. So this begins to inform how we should live or to inform how Paul is instructing the Corinthians on how they should live as, as they exist. And it is this, we should live with a deep and abiding and pervasive sense of God's calling, God's powerful, impactful calling upon our lives. And, and that word calling has such significance. It, it's not just limited like to pastors or, or people called to the mission field. That word has deep significance for all Christians and, and, and all people. We all know that if you walk around with a sense of calling, there's a sense of compulsion. There's a sense of, man, this is who I am. This is what I do. And, and, and just to understand this, from a powerful standpoint, why don't you, you and I do this? Insert your name right here. And, and you could say, hey, my name, and I am called to be a business person for the glory of God by the will of God. I am called to be a dad. I am called to, to be a stay-at-home mom and for the, by God's will to raise my family, help raise my kids. I am called to be a part of this church. I am called to, to be a teacher. I am called to be a coach. And when you just put that word called in that phrase, it suddenly gives some oomph, right? It suddenly gives some meaning. It suddenly gives some purpose. It suddenly becomes like a true north for who you are and for why you are. So we should live with a deep sense of God's calling on our lives. 
And then Paul is going to unpack that and we're going to attach some descriptors and, and some more depth to the meaning of being called. He says this now. He says, to the church of God at Corinth. So he's writing to this particular church in a particular time in a particular location. Notice what's powerful. The church belongs to God. It does not belong to man, to a denomination, to a pastor, to a group of elders. It belongs to God, and it is at a specific location, at a specific place in time. To those, and we're still talking about this church, these Christ followers, these Christians, to those sanctified, which is a a, a word that kind of means set apart, in Christ Jesus. So the church belongs to God, it's in Christ, and people are set apart. And then he brings the word back again, called as saints. And and this word is another word that means these people have been set apart by God. Just like Paul was set apart by God with this word called as as the main action verb. With all those, so we're not only called in a specific time, in a specific location, but we're called with all those in every place. So all churches, all people who have experienced this call of God upon their lives, with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. So we, that God calls us and we call back to Him, and this is happening in multiple places, in multiple locations, uh, and it's all part of what it means to be called. So he's unpacking the word called, and he says we should live with a sense of belonging, ownership, possession. We belong to God, and we belong to His church, both the church locally at a specific city, and you can fill in one of your six if you're a Rock Bridger, and or a member of a church at, like, at church at Rockbridge, and universally with all other believers who have been called by God. So we should live with this sense of belonging to God and to a, to a group of people. In fact, the word church literally means called out one. So our calling is a sense personal. God called Paul. God's called me. And in, our, our, in a sense, our calling has a we component, that I belong to a larger group of people. I belong to a community of people. I belong to that community in commitment locally, but I'm also connected universally to Christians a ways away in other countries, in other cities, in other locations. And then the second aspect of calling that Paul uh, iterates is that we should live with a God-given identity as saints, that when we look at ourselves in the mirror, when we have embraced Jesus Christ, we see I have been set, this does not mean perfection, but it does mean I'm moving in a new direction and living in a new way, in a new direction, right? That we look ourselves in the mirror, that we don't see, you know, all our flaws, we see that our God has called us and set us apart for specific reasons and specific purposes. Now, this word calling is so significant in Corinthians, and it's so significant really in all of Paul's writing, and it encompasses so many things with so many implications, but the genesis of the call, or or, or where the call uh, emanates from or echoes out from, is from Jesus and what he has done 
on the cross in what we call the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for us and instead of us to accomplish for us what we cannot accomplish for ourselves, and that is uh, paying our sin debt, ransoming us, liberating us so we can be adopted into God's family. So we see this in other places like in 2 Timothy where Paul says this, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Holy, set apart, a calling that sets us apart from the rest of the world. So in the Corinthians place, in the Corinthians situation, he saved us and called us with a holy calling that sets us apart from Corinth. This crazy, cosmopolitan, metro, uh, money-driven, status-driven, personality-driven city in ancient Rome that looks a lot like cities in modern America. So he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. And look at when this happened. Before time began, God had all this going. God had all this in mind. God was going to call. God was going to set apart. God was going to save. God was going to liberate. God was going to position. That's the impact. That's the scope of our calling. Then... This now, excuse me, this has now been made evident. So what God had before time began has now just been made evident to us through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immorality to light through the gospel, the good news. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher. And there's that word we saw in 1 Corinthians 1, 1. And then we'll see this again later on, probably next week, when Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. That comes back to the appearing of Christ who's abolished death and brought life and immorality. So we preach this Christ crucified. We preach this message to those who are called. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so the question that we begin with, how do I live versus how I should live, and we said the operable word was should. The question now can be read like this. How now should I live? Now that this calling of God has appeared, has been made evident through Jesus Christ. So how now should I live in light of Jesus, his cross and his gospel? So here's where Paul's going, and this is, one, this is why we're calling this message ripple effect. All right, We, we, we all know this, right? If I take a, a rock like this and I drop it in, in a body of water, a pond, a, a bathtub, doesn't really matter, right? A lake. We all know that this, this rock is going to displace the water and there's going to be waves that ripple out in generally concentric circles. And then those waves impact, right? Things that get in the way, right? That's kind of the ripple effect. We all know that, right? So, so Paul is saying, hey, listen. Something has happened in the calling of God when he dropped into history, and that is making an impact, and that is making a difference. It's informing who you are. It's informing and, and showcasing what you belong to, and, and it's, it's how you live your life in light of this calling. Only for Paul, the, the calling, the, the, the impact is better illustrated not by this rock, but it's better illustrated by this one. That this one, we all would know, man, this is going to make 
a bigger impact, have bigger waves that emanate from it, a bigger ripple effect. And Paul says, man, this is the impact of Jesus and the gospel. Now, they live at Corinth. And so Paul's like, you're in this city, and it's crazy, and it's messed up, and it's very non-Christian. And, and, and you can see that on the news. Can we all relate? And, and he said, look, don't let the, the, the ripple effects of Corinth count more or be more impactful than that of the gospel call of Jesus Christ. And then in light of that, there's something else he mentioned because he says, hey, this is the scope of the call, the impact of the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says people who have seen that and understand that and received that, they then call back to God. So we should live as those who call on the one who has called us. And, and this call on, or and we see that in verse 2, that we call upon God. That's not a one-time invocation. That's not a one-time pray that prayer. That's not a one-time decision. The, the, the best interpretation of that word is that is an ongoing, habitual, continual state of a called person who continually calls upon God in worship, in fellowship, in relationship, in that their life is now shaped by the call of God upon them so that they call back upon God, yes, for initial salvation, but it affects every aspect of their life from the moment that rock hits their heart forever and ever. And then Paul ends this introduction with kind of the new direction and the fuel of that direction. He says, grace to you, you still need grace, you still need what you don't deserve, you still need favor from God, that's the fuel of how you now should live. Grace to you, grace called you, and grace now informs and directs how you live, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this peace he has is twofold. First, we have relational peace with God. We were once at war and hostile to God because of our sinfulness, which Jesus took care of, boom, on the cross, right? But this peace is also has Jewish connotations where we use the Hebrew word shalom to, to, to communicate the overall flourishing, what Jesus says, the full and abundant life that are available to those who have been called and who call back upon God to give grace to them and peace to them. And that's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we could just say this. Called is accepting and living out our position in God's story. God calls us out of sin, out of darkness. God calls us out of the values of the Corinths in which we live. And we call back to him and accept his call of us and then live out that position as called out ones, that's what church means, in God's story because God is the one writing the story. Paul's saying like, I would not be who I am or where I am had not God put me into his story. Had God not God called me out and I called back to him. And so there's this sense of such dependence upon God and that we're a part of God's story. Remember, it's God's church at Corinth. It's not the Corinthian church that God's a part of. It's God's church at Corinth. 
And then Paul now is going to talk about some of the blessings that come from having been called by God and put into this position. And he starts in verse 4 and he says, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. When you were positioned in Christ Jesus as part of that calling upon God. Hudson Taylor says when we think about this, it's the joy of Jesus living in you. That there is a joy of having the gospel hit your heart and you live in that ripple effect, that impact where everything about you is impacted in the ripples of the gospel that come out of that gospel calling. And there's the joy of Jesus living in you. So our position in Christ gives us certain privileges. Our called, our called out position gives us certain privileges. And then Paul's going to go through uh, about five of them right now. And he says that you were enriched or made wealthy in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift, and he'll address spiritual gifts later on about chapter 12, 11 and 12, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await or hope for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an incredible description of how it is to live the Christian life. He will also, God will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the story you're a part of. And you've been enriched in every way to live faithfully as the called out people. Here's the five graces that God, that Paul is talking about. First, you've been enriched. You have speech and knowledge. That would refer to, man, you have received the word of God. Tell you a little bit about the church's history. Paul planted the church, and we get that story in Acts chapter 18, and then he taught and ministered there for 18 months. So they were under the teaching ministry of Paul for a year and a half, right? Paul didn't stay in most places that long, but he stayed in Corinth for 18 months, and so they had access to God's Word from Paul. When Paul left, another guy named Apollos took his place. Apollos has this, his own little story, but he was known as a very effective orator or communicator of the gospel truths that he learned from Paul and some people in Paul's circle, in Paul's life. So this church had the Word of God. The church in America has the Word of God. It goes on, and he says, look, this, God's work among you was confirmed. You have assurance. In, in our case, we might say they know that they're believers. They have legitimately been saved, right? And so you have affirmation that God is with you and that God has called you. They have gifts. They have, they have enough empowerment to serve and build up the body of Christ. He says you don't lack any of the spiritual gifts. You, you have everything you need to be a powerful and effective church that is consistently being edified or built up in Christ by the grace of God operating in you. You have hope, and your hope is actually positioned correctly. Your hope is on the second coming. It, your hope is not you know, necessarily in the emperor of Rome. Your hope is not in some revolution or some political turmoil. Your hope is not in, in wealth necessarily. Your hope is not in the local economy and, and, how, and, how, and every, anything like that. Your hope is actually in the second coming. 
And then he says, you're going to be strengthened to endure. You have perseverance. All of this is yours. They have everything they need to live how now, how now they should live in light of the gospel call of Jesus Christ crucified. And then Paul further says, and all of this is pretty much, it's guaranteed, it's yours, not because y'all are perfect, but because God is faithful. And he comes back to it. You were called by him into fellowship, into relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this relationship has so many implications. This relationship has so many blessings. It impacts everything. It's the giant rock dropped in your heart, dropped in history, and it ripples out, and it's going to affect everything. In fact, Paul's going to talk about lawsuits. Paul's going to talk about divorce and singleness. Paul's going to talk about sex and sexuality. Paul's going to talk about what a worship service should look like. And there is no untouched area of our lives by the ripple effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ when it appeared into history and when God called us out of darkness, called us out of sinfulness in order to live as his people in fellowship with his son. Now, this is powerful stuff, and and I want to illustrate it this way, and I'm indebted to so many commentators and, and different pastors that have helped me. And if you want some of those resources, I'll, be, I'll make those available to you. Just shoot me an email if you want something to study. But, but this illustration I found particularly powerful in, in relation to the church at Corinth. I don't know if you've ever heard of this term. I had not heard of this term. It's called burging, right? It's burging. It, it means basking in reflected glory basking in reflected glory. It's actually, a, it's actually a psychological term. It means a self-serving recognition cognition where somebody associates themselves with another person's success such that the other person's success feels like their own accomplishment. All right? So if you're a parent and your kid comes home and they make all A's or your kid makes the team, or, or, or gets the crucial clutch hit or clutch basket or clutch play in a sport, you bask in reflected glory, right, of your kids. Now, where you see this most prevalently is in sports. Like, if you're a sports fan, when your team wins and, and you did nothing to help them win other than maybe watch them on TV or, 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 or maybe you went to the game because you got some tickets – you feel like their success is your success. I know a lot of Georgia fans felt that way after the first national championship in a lot of years, right? The Braves fans, same way. For me, the clearest example of this is the Miracle on Ice story. I don't know if you've seen the movie. It's incredible. But the 1980 men's hockey team, which was an amateur team, which upset the, the Russian team, which hadn't lost like in years, and it beat like three weeks before they had just killed the American team. I, I was looking at this picture today in preparation for for this, this weekend message, and I was getting goosebumps just thinking about the story. And, I, and it's an underdog story. It's a patriotic story. It, 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 it's I, I love America, and it's against the communists, I, everything about it. And, and I, I was like five years old, didn't even know it happened, saw the story later, and I still bask in the reflected glory of these gutty, gritty guys who, who had one of the greatest upsets in absolute sports history. Now, what does that all have to do with Corinth and us. Well, a lot of us feel like our lives are not where they're supposed to be, should be, 
And that's what's going on at Corinth. We'll unpack that. I mean, it's a problematic church, but Paul doesn't start with problems. He starts with potential, and he starts with provision that God's already made. And so when we feel defeated, we look at the, not the miracle on ice, we look at the greatest miracle ever, which is that God sent his son to conquer death, and he rose again on the third day, and his glory becomes our glory when we receive our calling from him. So when we feel defeated, we look at his victory and realize his victory is our victory because we too have been called by God. When we feel condemned by maybe mistakes or sins we've committed and we look at his miracle, we look at his victory on the cross and let that ripple effect through us, we know that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. When we're tempted to believe that we are who other people say we are or we are what we have or what we accomplish or what we achieve and we start having that identity crisis as teenagers or because we didn't make the team or because we didn't play as good as we thought or didn't make the grade or we're not where we thought we'd be when we're in our 30s and we go through midlife crisis or we're at the end of our lives and we're like, man, did my life matter? And all those identity, identity, identity things. We look at Jesus, the greatest miracle, which is way greater than this miracle, the miracle of the cross, the miracle of the resurrection, and we realize I am not who the world says I am or who the world says I should be. I am who you say I am, and that's the ripple effect of this calling on our identity of who we are. So we bask in the reflected glory of the one who called us, and then we call back to him in faith, in trust, obedience, worship, and dependence. All right, so I've hinted at this. This church at Corinth is a church with problems, as every church is, because we're made up of people like me and, and us, right? So what's the problem? Now Paul starts to talk about the problem. But just know what he first started talking about was not their problems, but their calling by God. Their calling by God. Here's their problems. So now I urge you, we're going to start telling you some things. Brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you. So the church is now dividing. This church that shares this common calling is now dividing. And that you be united with the same understanding and under the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, Chloe's a businesswoman, lived in a place called Ephesus, and she had business interests that took her or her associates to back and forth from Ephesus to Corinth. And she's a believer, and she's heard that there's infighting and quarreling and, qui and cliques and pride and status-seeking in the church at Corinth. So Paul gets this report, and it prompts him to, to, to start writing this letter and responding to this letter. And there's some other reasons he wrote, but, but this is front of mind, at least at this point in the letter. But Chloe's people are telling me there's rivalry among you, and what I am saying is this. And he starts talking about the rivalry. He says, some of you are saying, well, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Caiaphas, or Peter, or I belong to Christ. And so it's become, a, a Paul lived, was there 18 months, followed by Apollos. Maybe, maybe some people are like, no, 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 let's go all the way back to Peter. He, started, he was kind of the, the head of the first church in, in Jerusalem. And then some are like kind of almost self-righteously like, man, I don't belong to any church. I just belong to Jesus. And it's almost like a Jesus juke in the first century, right? But basically there's parties and there's factions, right, in the church. And the church 
is becoming kind of personality-based and personality-driven because the city, the culture that they belonged in was that way. The culture that they belonged in was, was follow, you know, entertainers or people who had great rhetorical ability because rhetoric and, and oratory was a big form of entertainment here in this city back in, in, in ancient Rome. And so they're becoming very personality-driven. And so bottom line is this. What Paul has told them for the first nine verses is they had the position, they're called, they had the provisions of grace, but they lacked the manifestations of God's power. In other words, instead of their calling having the most impact, what was having the most impact was that they were in Corinth. They were in a culture that was lost and far from God. And it's a question for every church to ask is, does the church have more impact on the culture or does the culture have more impact on the church? And this church was looking more like the city of Corinth than the people of God called by God. To say it another way, the scene they were living in, they were at Corinth, had become their story. Their story is when you're called, you're called into God's story, but they let the, the calling of Corinth the lifestyle of cosmopolitan, metro, personality-driven Corinth, they let that count more, way more than the calling of God. The scene, they're at Corinth, was more than the gospel call of Jesus Christ, and they started looking more like unsaved Corinthians than called-out Christians. Can we relate? Can we relate? I mean, think about personalities. How many Christians get infatuated with entertainers, with pop culture, with, with certain preachers. Oh, you should have heard that person preach. How, how, many, Christians, how, how many Christians in America got infatuated with, with, with Donald Trump? And when we read these, you know, Paul saying, you've got all these factions and some of you are here and some of you are here. What's going on? And, and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't understand it and he's calling them back to that original calling, the calling of God. He's calling them back to who God wanted them to be and called them to be, right? Instead of letting something as temporary and insignificant as a person, as a finite sinful person in, in, in a sinful city impact them, he's calling them back to the big rock, the one rock, the only rock that matters. And, and, he's, and so here's how he does that. He says, is Jesus Christ divided? He said, was, was Paul, he's talking of himself in the third person, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And, and, and replace that with somebody that, that, that maybe gets your attention in the news cycle or on social media. Re replace that, that Paul's name right there. We, we, we put, put somebody's name in there that you follow on social media or, or some personality that you're tempted to give more impact over you than you probably should. And Paul's like, you know, yeah, I planted the church and I preached there for 18 months, but I wasn't crucified for you. He says, were you baptized in my name? I, he goes, and then Paul says, look, baptism is important. We know that because I thank God I didn't baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I don't want to be the one you follow. I do not want to be the one you put on a pedestal. I did not call you. I was not crucified for you. But I did, in fact, 
baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't even recall if I baptized everyone else. For Christ did not send me. Here it is. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, with, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. In Corinth, people were idolized who preached or spoke with eloquence, who preached or spoke with a worldly form of wisdom. And Paul's like, I did not do any of that because I just wanted you to see and hear through my preaching the great impact, the ripple effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. And it is way bigger than me, Paul. It is way bigger than Apollos. It is way bigger than who we follow on social media. It is way bigger than who we did vote for or not vote for. It is Jesus Christ. He's the one we preach. He's the one that has positioned us in him to bask in his reflected glory. So, let me close with this story, all right? So, my absolute, like, greatest moment as a, as a kind of an average high school athlete playing high school football, my greatest moment came in the fall of 1992. That was my senior year, and we were on, on a road trip playing our, our inter-county rivals, right? And it was a tight game. It was in the second quarter. And I played defense, by the way, defensive back. And it was in the second quarter, and the game was 7-7, seven to seven, and uh, we couldn't move the ball a lot, and, and we stopped them. And, and it was just one of those kind of just back and forth, back and forth, grinded out games. And they had the ball on, on our 33-yard uh, line, and we were on defense, so I was on the field. And I got an interception, and... I ran 33 yards as fast as I have ever run or will ever run again. And little average athlete, Matt Evans, scored a touchdown. Broke the game open, and, uh, and we never looked back, and we won that game. Right? And uh, so impactful that I still talk about it, right? But he- here's the backstory of that game. I, I was fortunate enough to be coached by some amazing men and, and just knew the game of football so well, uncanny ability. And, uh, and all week in practice, all week in practice, you know, we knew that this team on offense would send a guy in motion. And, and emotions when the offensive sends a receiver or a running back to the opposite side of the formation, and, and the defense does something or they don't do something. Uh, they either adjust, they have a guy follow him, they, or they slide over to where he moved toward or, or something like that, or they do nothing. So all week, we did practice doing nothing. Matt, when he goes in motion, you're just going to stay there. You're just going to stay there. You're just going to stay there. Okay. We never practiced this, but my coach, he called me into his office. Like the day before the game, after we've already put in our game plan, he says, Matt, I want to change something. When that guy goes in motion, I want you to go with him. I think we might get something out of that. I think that might, might put us in a better position defensively to be successful. And so, second quarter, they hadn't done anything. Hadn't done, finally, I, get, I see that guy go in motion, and so I zip across. The quarterback kind of made a, you know, kind of trying to throw the ball to this little receiver. I stepped in front of it, and 33 yards later, I'm here telling you this story, 20-some-odd years later, right? And you start thinking about it, and you start postulating, and I'm like, 
I just was called into the office by my coach, and I just did what he told me to do. He put me in the right place, in the right position, at the right time. Now, what if he didn't call me into his office? I wouldn't have a story to tell you today. If God didn't call us, we wouldn't be able to be part of his story either. But I also had to respond. I had to do and obey what my coach told me to do. And I obeyed God. I obeyed him. Coaches are like God. But I obeyed him, and I caught this ball in an interception, which is a great thing for a defense, right? And, and, and so some of us, we've answered. We've called back to God, and we've received what he has for us. And my coach envisioned this being a big play in the game. He, he wanted the best for us, right? And, and then, but I started thinking, I said, what if I caught that and I stopped? Or instead of sprinting 33 yards, I tried to jog. Or I started looking and waving and taunting and looking at me, looking at me. I wouldn't have a story to tell either. So there's some of us who, yeah, God's called us and we've received something. But we're not running for the prize. We're not living the impact of God's call upon us in Jesus Christ. And the ripple effect of the gospel, and I pray the ripple effect of this sermon series, is that we become truly who God has called us to become. His people for such a time as this, at Dalton, at Calhoun, at Chatsworth, at Ringgold, at Hickson, at Cleveland. There's some of you here today, and I just want you to have the opportunity. God is calling you to become part of his family, to position yourself where he wants you in Christ, in his church. And you need to say yes to him. You have to call back to him in faith and in surrender, in repentance, to receive everything he's done for you, to receive all the privileges of being his son or daughter, and then to run how he has positioned you to run for his grace and glory. If you're ready to say yes to that, you use a next step card, you talk to someone in, the, in, our, in our connection areas, you let us know online, and we'll celebrate with you. and We'll set you up for baptism. How now should you live in light of the love of God in the gospel that has just been received in your heart as you call out to him? Others of you, you've received Christ, but you've quit running the race that he's called you to run. May God help us run for the prize and run for his glory because of the impact of his calling of us in Christ Jesus. Let us pray together. God, thank you for your word. May it carry weight in our hearts. May people today hear you calling them and call back to you in repentance and faith and thus become your children, your sons, your daughters, part of your called out ones that make up your church. God, may all of us commit to running with grace toward the prize, toward the goal for your glory. Thank you, Jesus, 
for the call. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.